Now, thank you, Brother Solomon, for joining us on our screen. Now we have the opportunity to join you on yours and express our appreciation. That's the, the wonder of the church, isn't it? That we are not separated by walls or by distance or by geography. We are together in Christ. And that in Christness is the thing that makes us a community. It is on the subject of community that we're going to be spending our time reflecting today. We're in the midst of this series, kind of a, a New Year's series, an inaugural series called start again. How many of you, when 2022 hit, hit it with that kind of prayer? God, let this be the year. We just, we want to start again. If we could take 2021 and just rip it up and throw it in the trash, we'd love to start again. So here we are with this triangle that's going to come up on the screen as part of our start again message. This is a triangle that's really important to who we are as a church. Last week, we looked at the dimension at the pinnacle of the triangle, the idea of of moving upwards. Up is all about faith. And next week, we're going to look out at one of the poles at moving out. Out is all about hope. This is a world crying out for hope in the midst of a climate of fear and pessimism. We need hope. But this week, we're looking at the other direction. We're looking at the inward movement of the church, about community. And this is all about love. So it's up, out, and in, or faith, hope, and love. In fact, if you were to use those points on the the kind of triangular compass of life, I think you could probably say that most people live that way. Not just people in the church. Most people have an up, in, and out dimension to their lives. They have some sort of framework or some value system that informs their decisions. They're things that they aspire to as people. Many people are philanthropic. They're committed to a variety of causes. They're generous. They give their money. They give their time. They give their blood. I started donating blood again last year, went a few times. I'm amazed that place is filled up with volunteers. I mean, voluntarily, they actually go in. They give their very blood. I mean, how good is that? It's it's something that they are committed to, and it's something something that's very outward-looking. Think about people who are maybe in your community of friends, but outside the community of the church. Think about the relationships of their lives. Many of them have great friendships. Isn't that true? Do you think about your peers? Some of them have great friendships. I know that's a surprise for for people who are steeped in the church. People outside the church actually have friends. Yeah, they do. They have great friendships. They have really good relationships. So it's really worth asking the question, What difference does Jesus make in any of this? The up, the in, the out. How is it that we are living our lives differently because of Jesus? What is it about Jesus that makes the good things in people's lives pale in comparison to what could be even better? We're going to contend this morning that one of the things that we experience, or one of the places we experience the difference most profoundly, is in community. Jesus has an awful lot to say about this thing. He says, for example, you'll know, they'll know that you're my disciples 
by how you do community. I mean, that's not exactly what he says. He says, they'll know your disciples by your love. Yeah, they'll know your disciples by your love. That's a community word. Think about that moment in Jesus' life when he was speaking inside a home and a, and a community of friends brought in their sick friend, cut a hole in the roof, lowered him down on his mat to be in the presence of Jesus so he can be healed. And Jesus does heal, and he attributes the healing to the faith of the community. It's your faith that's done it for him. The great command of Jesus is rooted in community. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Neighbor is a community word. Neighbor doesn't make sense without a neighborhood. That's a community. Our cultural psyche is geared towards community. That probably is why the past two years have been so devastating. We know from studies, for example, that researchers say the average person needs 8 to 10 physical touches a day, physical points of contact a day, just to thrive, to feel like they're doing more than just eking out existence, but actually thriving in life, especially so for children. And that's why being cut off has been so devastating for all of us. There's a scientific journal called the... The Journal of Happiness Studies. There's a journal for everything, right? (laughs) This is the Journal of Happiness Studies, published by a group of psychologists who are studying what they call subjective well-being. What is it that makes a person experience happiness? What is it that makes them feel joy in their lives? And they find that there is one factor that distinguishes kind of self-described happy people. People who say, yeah, I, I feel good. I feel good about me. I feel good about the world. I'm a happy person. There's one factor that distinguishes those from self-described unhappy people. It's not income. It's not security. It's not physical attractiveness. It's not IQs. It's not career success. It's not physical health. What distinguishes consistently happier people from less happy people is the presence of deep and meaningful Lasting relationships. There's a political science professor, a man named Robert Putnam. Putnam works at the uh, John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University. And he wrote a book about the decline of community in this 21st century. He called the book Bowling Alone. What a great title, eh? Bowling Alone. And he described the connection between contentment on the one hand and community on the other hand. This is what he says. The single most common finding from a half century's research on the correlation of life satisfaction, not only in the United States but around the world, is that happiness is best predicted by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. Community has power. I mean, it has real power. And Jesus gets to the core of this need in what is arguably his most famous vision-casting message. I mean, here's the news here. The vision-casting statement that we're going to read together, Matthew 28, which is often the great evangelism statement, the great outward thrust of the church, 
is not just about making converts. It's not about being right. It's not about being superior. It's about doing life together. That's the Great Commission. And here's what it says. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Here's the opening. And it's so important that you not miss the opening. Verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And he said, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is meant to be a vision casting series. So why not go right to the heart of Jesus' signature vision casting passage? The one that has led to just a whole lot of good in the world. But let's be honest, it's also led to a considerable amount of pain. And it all hangs on how we understand what it is Jesus is asking us to do here. Is it to have dominion over the world? Colonialism and superiority and conversion at the end of a knife? See, we have to get this passage into our blood, but we have to get it in there right. This big vision-casting statement, Jesus' grand vision, is addressed to his community for the sake of the community. It's not to one person, and it's not for one person. Jesus addresses this little community of his disciples, and he gives them this big, bold, grand vision of what he wants them to be about. If you've been with us, um, some of you are joining us online, your memory will go back further than others. But if you've been with us uh, for some time, you'll know that we introduced a set of three values this is a few years back, to describe the kind of community that we want to be about. We mentioned them again last week. These, these values, they are all found, they are rooted in the Great Commission, and they ripple throughout the rest of the New Testament. But they are values that are not just found in, but are best lived out in community. Here they are. You can say them if you know them. Nobody is perfect, right? Everybody is welcome. Anything is possible. Everyone is welcome. Nobody is perfect. Anything is possible. And what I'd like to do in our time today is to take each of those phrases with a little bit of twist about their implications and use them to understand this bold, grand vision that Jesus leaves with his disciples. Let's start with the nobody is perfect. Jesus' big vision casting passage actually begins with kind of a nobody is perfect prelude. Here's what it says. Have a look back at verse 16. And then the 12 disciples went to Galilee. To What? No, it doesn't say that, did it? Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee. 
to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had led them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, filled with fervor and conviction. No, it didn't say that either. Some doubted. See, the passage doesn't start with go into all the world, all authority is with me. It starts with the 11. The 11. Those of you who have spent some time in the Bible, you know the context for this, the 11. The 11 was not a number of of completion, of perfection. It was a fall from the grand design of God. The number 12 was the number you see throughout Scripture as as the sort of stamp of uh, of identity, that God is with this. The 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus calls 12 disciples. There are 12 days of Christmas. Now, I just want to see if you're awake, paying attention. But, uh, but 12, 12 is meant to be the number of completion, of perfection in Scripture. The great vision of Jesus starts with the fall, the failure of the 12. It begins with the not enough. It begins with the insufficient, the imperfect, the incomplete. So one theologian says, and I love this, this is the quote on the screen, that the number 11 limps. It's not perfect like 12. The church that Jesus sends into the world is 11-ish. <laughs> Looks like elvish, doesn't it? Is 11-ish, is imperfect, is fallible. I'm trying to imagine the, the great funding pitches that go on in venture capital offices. Okay, we have this idea for you today. And we're going to start this way. We're going to start with a flawed, incomplete team. <laughs> you kind of get tossed out the door right at the beginning. But it's not just a flawed team. It's a team called disciples. These are not leaders. Church officers, apostles, experts, directors, chiefs. These aren't champions or power rangers, Jedis, whatever your title. These, these are disciples. We are going to start a world movement with learners, with apprentices. We're going to start with interns, a flawed team of interns. That's how we're going to change the world. And just to add a little bit more flavor to the discussion, we get this comment. When they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Huh? Okay, now we're, now we're really moving in the wrong direction. Not a stirring vote of confidence for the Lord of the universe. Some doubted. Fallible, doubting interns. They're not perfect. This idea, this principle, this nobody is perfect, really is one of the pillars of Jesus' vision. And it sounds an awful lot like bad news, but actually, actually it's really good news. You see, a world-changing community, a nobody is perfect community, turns out to be the kind of safe place where you can be loved and where you can be nurtured, where you can enjoy and be trusted with full disclosure about who we are in order to heal and to grow. See, this fallible 11, they actually become a pretty good community. They get really good at it. 
And they help each other move towards faith. You know the story of doubting Thomas, right? Thomas doubted. Jesus appeared. He heard about it. Thomas said, I don't believe you. Then later on, Jesus appears to Thomas, and, and Thomas says, I see your wounds. I feel the nail prints in your palms. I believe. It's a beautiful story. But in between doubt and belief, there is Thomas's community. In between, it says for about a week, the disciples, they were together. Thomas was there with them. Isn't that a great picture of community? The believers and the doubters hanging in together. Brothers and sisters saying, we're going to stick with you in this. Right after the story of Thomas is the story of Peter. Another great story. Peter has failed miserably. I mean, his life is a disaster at this point. And later, Jesus appears and restores Peter. Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. You remember the story. But in between Peter's failure and his restoration, what is there? There's the community. Peter gets up one morning and says, I guess it's all over. I'm going to go fishing. What else do I know how to do? I give up. The disciples say, and I think it's maybe some of the most beautiful things to say to somebody when there are no words to say. They say, listen, we'll go with you. We'll just, we'll go with you. That's what a community does. They don't coerce. They don't force or pressure, but they don't give up on a person. They stayed with them. They're there with each other. Fallible, doubting interns. Staying there together, struggling friends. And they get really good at this. Turns out, this is a great way to live in community. And Jesus launches his big vision. He says, therefore, go and make commanders and chiefs and army. No, he doesn't say that either. Make disciples. Not preach, not Win, not convert, make disciples. In fact, the, the verb that's used there in the language of the Bible is a softer word. It's almost, well, it's kind of schoolish. It, it's meant to be done over time. School doesn't happen in a day. Especially it doesn't happen in a day online, does it? But school takes time. It's it done over time. It's done in relationships. The relationships formed among peers in the classroom, with teachers, in groups. Even those words that Jesus uses, teaching them to obey, these are slow words. Not pressuring them, not forcing them, not calling them out. Again, the language here in the New Testament is meant to say, listen, Work carefully with people. Listen to them. Do life together, talking and inquiring and listening. That's a discipling community. I don't know about you, but, but it's hard to imagine doing life well without that. There's going to be times in our lives when we doubt ourselves, when we doubt God, when we fail. Where do you go then? Where are the places in our society that say this is a safe place to bring your failures, your doubts, your inadequacies? We need people to listen and be gentle and do life together. And the world is desperate for it. We need a community 
who will go with us. And that seems to me to be what Jesus was trying to do. And he wanted people to be part of it, including those who don't entirely believe, and those who see themselves only as failures. This is a nobody is perfect community, and it requires an incredible amount of courage to hold it together. It requires authenticity. Because we don't just get to say nobody is perfect. We actually have to live it out face to face. No hiding our imperfections. Because there's just something about being authentic, about being face to face with people. About taking down all the false selves and saying, this is who I really am. Something that's risky, but something that's so honest that it builds depth into community. And if you're wondering if there's any part of your story, your own history, that makes you feel like you will not belong here, well, guess what? I'm the leader. And they hired me. And if you knew some of the things that I know about me and that they've learned about me, I guarantee you they will welcome you. It's good news. Nobody's perfect. Let's move to the second pillar. Everybody's welcome. It's the second pillar. Nobody's perfect. Everybody's welcome. That sounds, it sounds kind of neat, right? It's actually, it's actually pretty messy. Because the moment you open it up, everybody is welcome. The moment the messiness begins, we joke a lot about it in the staff, don't we, Sheldon, Nathan? Church would be a whole lot easier if it weren't for all the people that keep showing up. Where people show up, it gets messy. The more people that show up of more different types and backgrounds, the messier it gets. Jesus was always messing with who gets invited to the gathering, who gets to be at the party, who belongs to the community. And so you catch him in these little vignettes talking theology to an outcast Samaritan woman, healing an authority-challenging blind man, staying at the house of a despised tax collector. He goes deep into conversation with these people. He gets to know their stories, their histories, who it is that they are, what makes them the people they are. And every time he did it, it created waves of controversy in the world. And everybody is welcome community is rarely ever neat. So if you're looking for neatness in the church, don't aspire to this. And everybody is welcome. No matter your background, your pedigree, your education, your orientation, everybody is welcome is just going to be messy. In fact, as I read it, there's only really one point in all of Christian church history where there was real harmony, real unity. It's found, well, guess where you find it? You can have a look. Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 48. The first day in the life of the church. The verse quoted, anytime we're dissatisfied with our current church experience. We hear this passage, Acts 2, 42, quoted a lot. They held everything in common. They shared what they had. And people say, let's get back to the way that it was. And we romanticize the first century church like, like there's a flute playing in the background. Like, like this is the Shire from the Lord of the Rings and everybody's happy and growing gardens and, and growing spiritually and sharing and serving and having everything in common. And they're watching their numbers increase. Well, guess what? 
That's day one in the life of the church. Read the rest of the book. The book of Acts. Read the rest of the New Testament. The the history of the church is this long, difficult struggle of living out everybody is welcome. It begins with everything being great, and then people started to show up en masse. And what follows is the mess of being in community. They heal a beggar. Well, that's a problem. What do we do with beggars now? They reach out to an Ethiopian eunuch. Well, what do we do with with the African population, let alone the eunuch population? Watch what Ethiopian eunuchs are going to do to your community. Turns out they did incredible things. The church grows like wildfire in Africa. Next comes a Roman centurion. Well, what do you do with the army when they show up, especially the Roman army, because we hate them. Uh, then there are the Gentiles. Oy vey, the Gentiles. Look at you, you Gentiles. Do you have any idea how much trouble you caused for the church when you first showed up? People start getting arrested. Lives are threatened. And as the book of Acts end, ends, everything is unsettled. That's what it means to say that everybody is welcome. That's exactly where community gets challenging. Community is beautiful, but it's a beautiful mess. And any of you who have stuck it out with a small group for more than a season or two, you've experienced the mess of it, haven't you? I mean, hands up if you've been in a small group and and, and you stuck it out. You didn't just go uh, down the road a few months later, but you stuck it out. You went through some messy times, didn't you? Stuff came up in your small group. We don't know how to deal with this. There was conflict. There was revelation, self-revelation that's going on. And it was awkward and it was uncomfortable. People arrived and they didn't get along. People left because they couldn't get along. Community is messy. M. Scott Beck, M. Scott Peck, (laughs) wrote a book called The Different Drum. That was the first time I ever heard the word pseudo-community used. And the point he's getting at is that what most people are really known for and comfortable with is only a kind of pseudo-community. It's not real. We're just cresting along the surface of relationships, pretending to be together. But we've never really been through the chaos of it. It's only when you get through the chaos of it that you get out the other side. Marriages understand what that is, right? You go through the chaos and the pain of figuring out life together, and then you get to something on the other side. And we know, and we can track in marriages where the chaos spots normally are, and most marriages don't survive, and that's the tragedy of it, because we are satisfied with pseudo-community, and we're not willing to believe that real community not just endures, but thrives on the other side of the chaos. It's just, it's so powerful. Why go through all of this? One of the most beautiful books that was ever written on the subject of community was written by a man, a German man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. During the the heady days of World War II, under incarceration, Uh, the book is called Life Together. And he talks about the need for going through the mess of it. This is what he said. A community which cannot bear and cannot survive Such a crisis, which insists on keeping its illusion when that illusion should be shattered, 
it permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. And sooner or later, it will collapse. You hear what he's saying? Community which cannot endure crisis, but prefers instead the illusion of pseudo-community, will eventually collapse. Jesus begins his whole ministry with 12 disciples. Didn't have fancy programs. There was no children's day camp. Didn't do any of that kind of stuff. Didn't set up a youth group. Not that there's anything wrong with those. We love youth group and day camp. But he just gets, he gets 12 disciples. He gets a gathering of women who travel with him along with the 12 disciples. And he goes through the hardship of life with them. Arguing about who gets to be number one. Picking fights with the guards. Losing one of their members. In one of the hardest ways possible. Betrayal and suicide. Watching their leader get arrested. These hardships lead them into real community. And just to help them along the way, he He gives them some commands to obey. That's how he helps his friends, that community of the twelve. He gives them commands. Don't be alarmed by words like obey and commands. These are the common words used by rabbis. And, And be honest, we all have rabbis in our lives. We all have those whom we are obeying, someone or something to whom we look to set the pace of our lives. Most times, We're unconscious of who we're following, but we're following just the same. So Jesus was saying, hey, try following my commands. These will really help you through this. My instructions, my ways. Just a few chapters before the Great Commission that we read in Matthew 28, we get the Great Commandment, that one guiding statement against which all the other statements are measured. You remember the setting? Jesus is asked, teacher, what's the great commandment? What's the greatest of all of them? Jesus said, here's the one. Here's the greatest. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. But here's the second This one flows from the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. All other commandments submit to this one. All the law, all the prophets hang on this. Jesus takes all of that, all that legalism, and replaces it with love. In fact, for Jesus, the distinguishing factor of his followers, the one sign of their identity in the world will be the way that they can love each other. And you cannot do that in isolation. It's a community thing. A new commandment I give you, love one another. That's how everybody will know who you really are. And then Jesus gives his grand commission, his great commission. Go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. And in saying that, I think he's he's really saying, love one another. Even that all the nations phrase. 
That's not a conquering statement. It's Jesus confronting all the, all the economic and cultural and political exclusivism that existed there in the first century. Paul got it. And he, and he encapsulates it in, in one of the real jewels of the New Testament, in Galatians 3.28, when he says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Everyone will be welcome. But that's something that can only be lived out in community. The manifestation of Jesus going into all the world begins with a sacred Jesus following community, learning to do life together. That's so important to us as a church that that a few years back, we set as a goal to make sure that at least 50% of all of our people, 50% of everybody who set even a toe in the door here during the course of the year, were connected meaningfully in some sort of small community experience, life group, small group, care group, whatever you call it, 50%. Then we went soaring past the 50%. God honored that goal. And so we revised it, and, and we set 80% as the goal, 90%. Are we there yet? We're not there yet. COVID kind of messed with us a little bit. But, boy, some of you are figuring out creative ways to be community together even when you are geographically apart. But if you were to ask Sheldon now, what's the goal? I don't know, Sheldon, that you would say 80% or 90%. He's likely to say something ludicrous like 115%. Meaning we think that we can reach more people in these vibrant small communities than we would ever see setting a toe in the door here at 3434 Cothra Road. When we do that, when we create these, these little communities, these everyone is welcome, nobody is perfect communities, it's then that we get to experience the third pillar. Anything is possible. What can God do with one of those little communities? Anything is possible. I don't know, that sounds improbable, with, but with God, all things are possible. We've seen incredible things happen in these little communities. People brought to life during seasons of despair. People nurtured through catastrophic, heartbreaking loss, marriage, health, the loss of a loved one. We've seen miraculous healing in people's lives. We've seen employment come out of situations of dire unemployment. We've seen provision in situations of poverty, not just divine provision, but groups gathering together saying, we will not let you fall. So we're going to pool up bits of our income to make sure that you have income for your family, and we'll get you through this. We've seen people get renewed. We've seen faith come to life. We've seen doubters journey together with people of deep faith. And we've seen what happens when the two rub together. God uses people to create authentic community. But here's the corollary. God uses community to create authentic people. It's just a blessing of being in community. So here you catch Jesus, his final words on earth, his valedictory address. All authority is with me, he says. I'll be with you 
even to the very end of the age. I'm the one who will make the difference. Humble yourselves. Trust me. Trust me in your community, not just in your life. Imagine a group of people together saying, God, we can't do this. We can't do it alone. We need you to help us. We need to do it together. And we do it in the presence of the one who says, all authority is with me. And I am with you. There's that one other little word in the text. The word baptism is there. Why baptism? Because baptism is just our response, our practice, our celebration in community, saying, God, we can't do this on our own. We need you in our lives, and we need you here together. It's a celebration that we love, and it's a celebration that we are planning again for the spring. So if that's something that you've never experienced in your life, let me invite you to that celebration as part of this community as a way of welcoming Christ into your life and welcoming you as a follower of Christ into this community. Come and be baptized. What a joyful opportunity to celebrate and live out the very final words of Jesus in your life. Of saying that we hear you, Jesus, and we're responding to that grand vision, that great commission, that great commission of, of living up and living in and living out. Next week, we'll talk about the out. I hope you'll join us for that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you that the vision that you have is not just for us as individuals, but it's for our neighbors and our neighborhoods, our schools and our workplaces, our cities and our nations. It's for our community. You understand, Lord, our need to be woven together in meaningful relationships. God, we, we want the courage to receive that invitation now. Help us to trust you as we take that step. For we pray this in your name. Amen.